we're going to use the rest of the time that we have to start a new book of the Bible. A lot of, even as you heard in the announcements, just so many things happening in this season of the calendar year that we live in. A lot of transitions happening. We have high school kids graduating, college kids moving home. We have a new dynamic for the calendar rhythms of the families of our church with kids at home. And, and we also are entering into what has been for the last few years kind of a tradition of our church is to look at something within the summer months that that would really be a standalone section for our time in the Word to, 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 to get something out of this season of summer that we're in. And, and as I was praying and just kind of, what is the thing that, the, the section of your Word that will be like a lamp unto our feet for the transitions of life, for the times that we live in, for really just more understanding for the little window of life that we're living right now that seems to be coming at us all so fast. And as a pastor, I, I have my thumb on the pulse a little bit and the questions of like, what do we do about this world that we live in right now? And so I was drawn to a extension of really something that came out of our James study that said, if you lack wisdom, ask God, he'll give it to you. And in one of the ways that we ask God for the wisdom of the questions of our life is just by looking to his word in the way that wisdom's already been revealed. And so uh, I, I was really starting to be drawn to the wisdom writings of scripture. You have Psalms, you have the Proverbs, and you also have one that is oftentimes um, avoided because it has the reputation of being kind of a depressing book. And I will say out the gate that I'm not going to do much to change your mind about how depressing this book can be this morning, but throughout our summer series that's going to last all the way through August, we're going to constantly look at one of the reputation's depressing books of the Bible that the more I study it, it's laced with inspiration. It's got so many things inside of this book that will, in one hand, give you so many things to confirm your anxiety, worry, depression of the last couple years, and in another way, redeem it all for God's glory. So we are studying the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. We're going to kick it off to, uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it's pretty close to the center of your Bible if you just open it. And today, my heart behind it is to really just give us an introduction to the book, because I think that's what the first chapter of this this book really is. It's like, what is the, the, the life that this writer is sharing with us? What's the point of it all? And maybe you've been asking that question in the times that you've been living. And what is the point of everything that's going on in our world right now, of everything that I'm doing with my life right now? How do I make sense of all of it? And the, the word gives us a journal of one man's life that asked this question long before you did. And he asked it in a way that gave him access to some of the most extreme answers you could find in the pursuit of making sense of life. And so Ecclesiastes chapter one, we'll start really in verse one, because this is where the introduction of the book gives us a little bit of a background. Look what it says just in verse one. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And the words of the preacher say this. The preacher says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, the word vanity there is equated to, it's like a vapor. Other ways that the, the, the idea will be, be uh, described is like grasping at wind. And all of life is a vapor, a grasping at the wind, a meaningless pursuit. That is the beginning and the introduction to the book and as to why it sometimes learns its, or earns its reputation as being a heavy or a despairing book. Um, 
let us use this first two verses as a way of introduction that will set kind of the backdrop to the stage of Ecclesiastes as you enter into a play and you see the backdrop, just seeing some of the things that are on the stage gives you a little insight into where the story is going. So the stage is set in these two, first two verses. Here's a couple of things for the backdrop of our study as we move forward in this over the summer. One is just the name Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the translation from the Hebrew into the Greek that gives this, this concept of an assembly. So the, imagine he describes himself as the preacher and he's gathering an assembly of people or a, a group of people to listen to him share the journey of life that he's been on in the pursuit of meaning, in the pursuit of something substantive that he can give his life to. And so the, the name Ecclesiastes kind of describes what we're doing right now, a gathering to try to find a little meaning. And the other backdrop in the definition that will often be attributed to this, traditionally, when we use the word, or we read the word preacher there, traditionally, this is going to give the backdrop of the life of Solomon. Now, that's not 100% clear in the writing that it's definitely Solomon, but for our backdrop, that is the tradition that I find to be the most suitable and helpful when trying to understand the, the, the perspective that this writer is going to have. And so you think about Solomon and the life that is on expose when we read about who he was in the book of Kings. Solomon was, in fact, son of David, king of Jerusalem. So he fits the title right out the gate. But as this story unfolds, what we're going to find is this preacher that is describing all of these vain pursuits of life is going to give us all of the ways that the journey of life gave him so much opportunity. And he had opportunity because of this unique time that he lived in, which was so peaceful and prosperous. And I think it's worth thinking about how we relate to this story because you relate more to Solomon than I think you realize. You think of Solomon, the reputation as the wisest man who ever lived. He wrote the majority of the Proverbs. He has all sorts of ways that his life was used in wisdom to do great things for the kingdom of Israel. And you think, really, I can be described as someone who can relate to the wisest man in the world? Well, he was the wisest man in the world who lived in a time of great prosperity and peace because he inherited a kingdom that all of the war was done on his behalf. He inherited a kingdom that came with great opportunity for wealth because he didn't spend a lot of time in the battlefield. There was a generation that came before him that gave him an amazing table of prosperity and peaceful living that allowed him to explore all of these different pursuits of life with the wealth to back it up and the wisdom to, to, to wrestle with all of these questions. And I say all of that and I, and I say, look around in the generation we live in. We live in a generation where wisdom is at your fingertips. You have in your pockets this morning access to everything Solomon ever wrote down in all of his pursuits of life. You have the answers to questions that people have been wrestling with for thousands of years, and we have collected them all to be the, the commonwealth of humanity now. Access to you. You have access to all of them. And then you think about peace and prosperity, the generation before us. We memorialize them on this amazing remembrance weekend as we think about people who gave their life so that we could exist in this kind of context. 
We have a sanctuary that is free of worship and I'm communicating truth that is offensive to some people in the world and yet there's no one storming the castle. We are here and sending out to work great jobs with great opportunity in a growing city. And those of you who know the Lord see this as a window that can be redeemed for something great. And those of you who don't, you're going to begin to see the dichotomy that exists in this book. Because we live in a generation not unique to this sanctuary that's never been more wise or wealthy, and yet, how are we doing with everything we've inherited? How is our generation doing with the gift of peace and prosperity, wealth, wisdom, and go to explore to see who you are? And by all accounts, it seems to be a generation that is wrestling with emptiness, wrestling with a loss of identity, wrestling with, in all of the ways that we experience the blessing of the generation handoff, we're struggling to make it meaningful. We're struggling to find any kind of direction that we can all be joyful about. And so we study this book, not as some distant past, but as a storyline that we can relate to right now. And that's why in the backdrop, you'll also see that this takes place in 925 BC. 30 centuries have come and gone since Solomon wrote this down. And how much can we look to in the, the coming months as we look at the journal of his life and the pursuits that he was on? And how many ways can we say, yep, that is still every man's pursuit. That is still every woman's wrestling match with meaning and desire for satisfaction that is like grasping at the wind because as Solomon will state, as the book will give us, there is nothing new to the storyline of your life. There is nothing that your experience that someone before you has not gone through and someone after you will not go through again. And the wisdom of God's word is one of the reasons that it is valid for us to stand on and build our life around. It works today, yesterday, and forever. And the final thing that we'll see in the backdrop is just the theme of this book. In fact, if you got a bulletin, we just put the theme right on it for the next couple months. You'll get a constant reminder of a phrase that will come up time and time again in this study, which is life under the sun. Life under the sun is a term that will be used in the, this writing as a way to describe your earthly existence. Uh, anything that's under the sun and the 70 to 80 year window of your little life and all of the things that you can pursue that have nothing to do with what's beyond this reality and everything to do with this reality apart from the existence of the creator God that set it all into motion. In fact, we get a synopsis of this entire journey right in the middle of this chapter, starting in verse 12. He says this, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. Another term for this idea that there are two realities that you wrestle with. One of them is just this life. This is the meaning of life, what you have now, what you can see and pick up with your senses and live out with your existence. And then there is something beyond that the, the writer calls under heaven or the heavenly realm. He said, it's a burdensome task that God has given to the sons of men. This journey that the writer of Ecclesiastes is on to find meaning, to understand wisdom, is a, is a, it's a troubling task that's given to everyone. That's why as we share the message of a, a desire for meaning and yet the, the frustration of not finding it, it is not something for a few of you. 
This is a message that when you hear someone wrestling with meaning, you're like, tell me more. I wrestle with it too. All of you. You have relationships and you have vocations and you have things you're doing with your life. And throughout the existence that you have, you will be wrestling as a gift from God for making sense of why you do what you do, why you live where you live, why you have the gifts that you have and the passion that you have and how to make sense of it all. And what he's going to go on to say, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity at grasping for the wind. If you do not have some sort of reality that goes beyond the physical, something that is beyond the sun, beyond the created world you live in, it will be vanity in the end. And all of you, I hope, in the journey of your life, as you think about your own journal, you have these moments where you can relate to the wrestling match where you tried to point your passion towards something very specific and then the wind was taken out of your sail because it was missing the essence of God's reality giving it life. And so one commentator says, what then is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? It's an essay in apologetics. It defends the life of faith in a generous God, the creator God who sets everything into motion by pointing to the grimness of the alternative. This is the expose of Ecclesiastes as, as you consider the introductory study to any book you're about to study. There's an overarching outline that you might want to be aware of as you think about where this book is taking you. And I can tell you the most simplistic outline there is for this book. It's 11 chapters of despair and frustration and then one chapter where there's an answer to it all. And so we'll have to, we'll have to keep, be mindful of the end goal of where we, we're going, lest week by week by week we continually look at life under the sun in a despairing way. But part of the job of this preacher and part of the job of all preachers that I have to sometimes begrudgingly accept is indeed to point out the meaninglessness of your life. It's to, to remind all of you that you're on all sorts of pursuits and every pursuit that is strictly under the sun, that is not part of the greater reality of God's kingdom, is in fact meaningless. I have to remind you of that through the way that it points you to folly, or broken heart, or frustration, or a dead end of your life. And then the good news comes in only when the preacher has done his job to say, your life is meaningless apart from God. And it's not simply a message of evangelism or day one salvation. It is the message of why we need constantly to be revived by the word of God, lest even in our pursuits of God, we point towards a meaningless journey of things that have nothing to do with his will. So that's the theme of the general theme of Ecclesiastes. And before we get into the crux of the verses we'll study today, I want to point out a few subplots, a few things that in his journey will come up continually, almost redundantly, as things that will draw from this book that they will then overlay the times that we live in. And there are three. First, there is his constant search for meaning. Your search for meaning is going to be constant in your life. It is a burdenful, it's a burdensome tax given to the son of men. You are all in a constant search for meaning. And part of the constant search for meaning, because we live in a world that has partial understanding, mirrors dimly lit as to where all this is pointing, we will all get tangled up in things that have less to do with God's will for our life 
and they will cause us to go through extreme loss of enthusiasm. Loss of enthusiasm is something that exists weekly. It's one of the reasons we have to get back together and be like, okay, let's praise God again because we love him and we worship him and then we go out to discern his will and we go wayward like sheep and, and the enthusiasm goes from our sails. And that's why revival is something that is the preacher's in the tool bag to say we need revived all the time. We need the word to revive us. We lose our enthusiasm for God and by proxy, we lose our enthusiasm for everything else. There's a loss of enthusiasm for marriages in this place this morning. There's a loss of enthusiasm for that desire to be used by God and be his hands and feet or his mouth. It just wears out. And there's a loss of enthusiasm for all of the ways that you try to apply your passion to find something meaningful. And from that loss of enthusiasm, the redemption that will come little by little and then with a grand finale in chapter 12, there will be conclusions by which we live. Conclusions for the times, not if, but when, the wind is just completely gone from your sails. Where you don't know the next turn and you're struggling once again because you feel like all you're doing is grasping at wind. And Solomon will say, here is the conclusion for the secret of life so that your life does not end in despair. This despair and the struggle gets redeemed season by season by God. But we start in chapter 1, where you see these themes play out throughout the introductory chapter. There's a desire for some sort of meaning. There will be all of these examples of reasons that enthusiasm just gets lost. And there will be some conclusions for us this morning by which we can begin to, I hope, make that dichotomy so clear. Life under the sun and life redeemed by God. And it starts in the first Example of a loss of enthusiasm, there will be four total. The first one is in verse 3. What profit has a man from all of his labor which he toils under the sun? Mixed in this is a question of meaning. Why am I working so hard? One generation passes away and another generation comes and the earth that I toil so hard to cultivate, it just remains there. I'm not building it towards anything. It's just season by season. There's the earth, and the generation comes, and the generation goes. And so you stand back and you think, why am I working so hard to save up all my money and die? And the wind is gone from the sail. So we call this the cycle of life and death. You're born, and you have these seasons where you're, you're, you're feeling alive, and then you go through that season of wondering what on earth you're doing. And eventually, that cycle will end, literally, with death. The generation that you're a part of is here for now. And vanity, vapor, it's going to be gone very soon. So one of the ways that we lose enthusiasm is realizing that the end is death. That the end can seem pointless if the window is only going to end in death. Welcome to the summer series. I hope that you brought a friend. You're all going to die. <laughs> Here's one way to think about this. I, I, heard, I heard this from John Ortberg, a pastor in California, and he said it's like this. One way to understand any of this is thinking through the game of life in an actual game. In one of his favorite games, I relate to it because it was one of my favorite games, still down to play if you like it, was Monopoly, where literally you keep the score of Monopoly by counting money. And then eventually the, the leader of the money count is the leader of the board, and then you shift to Acquisition, which is the new way to keep score. You got money into acquisition, and then you 
elevate into the game into just dominance. And is that not the generation of purpose that we often find ourselves being tempted by? You keep score with money, you advance down the game with acquisition, and you know you're winning when you're dominating. And that is one option that many people under the sun default into because it comes with the ability to buy things, the ability to acquire goods, to enjoy life, to be your own boss. And as he shared his story, it's mindful of the story we're all living in right now in a generation that's about to pass away in the blink of an eye. He shared the story of one of his utter dominating performances as he took his grandma down to her last penny in Monopoly. And he was so excited. He's got the whole board. He's dominating her. He's got every piece of property. He's got all of the money. He has won at the game of Monopoly that feels like winning at the game of life. And she turned to him and said, it's time to put it away. And if you've ever won Monopoly, you know there is a moment where you feel so good and then you're like, I guess we just got to put this all back in the box. It all goes back in the box. No matter who won, no matter who lost, no matter who has the most stuff, it all gets put back in the box and the game is over and so is your life. Under the sun, everything gets put back in the box. All of the ways that you toil and you labor and you try so hard to work your under the sun existence, there's a generation coming behind you that will acquire all of the stuff that you leave for them and your box is a casket which is the furniture of earth. Emotion or the loss of all of momentum when you realize that 70 years is a pretty short window. It goes on to talk about now how you see this, not only in your own desire to work and then wonder what it's all for, but also, the writer's going to point out that you actually live in an ecosystem of monotony. It's not simply your nine-to-five weekend warrior Mondays always waiting for you. Enjoy your two weeks and do it again until you die. You live in a hamster wheel of monotony. Look what he says, if not only the cycle of life and death that consumes you, but also the cycle of nature that you live in. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually. It's just going in circles. So the tornadoes of life, it's coming in, it's going out, and it's everywhere, and it comes back again on its circuit. The rivers run into the sea, and that the sea is never full. It's like, what is all of this going towards? To the place of which the rivers come, they return again. The rivers go down, in the, the seasons of the snow melting, the river goes into the deltas and then the evaporation of the sun and it's all one big cycle and you live within the monotonous seasons of the nature that God has placed us in. And don't you feel it sometimes in our desire to just be alive and passionate of life? It's like, I, I love when spring comes. I love seeing the first fruits of the, of the flowers coming out of the earth and the cartoon birds are chirping. It feels so good, and I, I love summer, and then inevitably, this happens every year. I've been, I've been bothered by this every year since I was in school. You're walking into a store to buy your summer fun candy and suntan lotion, and you see the first sign, back to school sale, and you're like, no, it's happening again. Summer is going to end again. It's happening, and they have to remind me that I need to buy pencils again. And then fall comes and you can live with it a little bit because, you know, pumpkin spice and beautiful uh, leaves. And it's like, okay, at least it's like a light breeze. And then eventually 
It comes again, and it's like snow. It's here, and your, your windows are frozen, and the, the, the dead branches on the trees are ugly, and we're just bearing down till winter, and you're going to do that for the rest of your life. And so you try to stop it. You're like, okay, this winter, you know what we're going to do? We're going to spend two weeks in Hawaii. We're going we're gonna to outthink this cycle of nature. And so the cycle of nature will come, and we'll be winter, and we'll, we'll spin, we'll juke move, and we'll be in Hawaii, and we'll get a suntan. And it'll be a reminder that suntans are the same as your fate. They fade so fast. And everyone who ever goes to Sun Valley has the, or Sun uh, Hawaii, they have the same thing. It's like, I wish we could just stay here. But you can't. You come home. And you're the, 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 the brownest guy in Boise <laughs> for about three days. And then it fades. And then you have to think about the next time you fight the cycle of, of nature. Momentum gone. Because you live in that design. It's designed by God to continue that way. There's no end to the cycle of nature. And then it brings us to something that is much more profound. This is where it starts to hit the soul and the heart. This is where you're, 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 the cycle of life and death and the nature that you live in is now going to prick you in the heart to realize that this is more than just my appetite for weather. This is my appetite for who I am as a person because the writer is now going to talk about this, the absence of actual satisfaction to your life. As soon as you get satisfied, the, the weather changes and the seasons move on and the loved one is, is departed and you have to learn how all of these cycles are continually moving the goalposts of satisfaction. This is what he says. All things are full of labor. Labor, man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. I love that he says, you can't even express this, but built into these endless cycles that end in death and monotony is this desire, this unquenchable desire to finally be satisfied, to finally find something that isn't on the move, that you can, you can hold on to and just be done with it. He says, you can't even express this, but it's something you all feel. That's why when one rock star wrote a simple song, I can't get any satisfaction, everyone's like, yes, you finally said what I was feeling. That is going to be the, the anthem of our, of our world because at least he just said it. But you all feel it. I mean, I, I, I mean, even in this exercise we're doing now, you're coming to church, and what does it say? You're not going to be satisfied with seeing or your ears filled with hearing. You come to church a thousand times, and you still have things you want to know. You have sermons that, that come into your ears and you think about them for a couple days and then they're gone. And you're like, okay, I got to learn more. I heard one story of a, a preacher who took over a church and he preached a sermon. Everyone loved it. Came back the next week and was like, wow, what's it going to be now? We're so ready for the next one. Preached the same sermon. And everyone's like, now that's not right. Can't preach the same sermon twice. He did it for four weeks in a row. Finally, he said, I'm going to keep preaching it until you guys finally get it. The idea being, it's like, we want all of these things to be satisfied, but we're never satisfied in just what we have. You came to church ready to hear from the Lord. How did you do last week with what we talked about? How was your morning time? How are you, you're, you're learning and, and hearing things from God. You're trying to do things to learn and acquire information, and you're never done learning. How many of you are going to check the news tomorrow? Probably a lot of you. It's the same. <laughs> you checked it today. Not much has changed. But it's like, I got to see. I got to keep going. I got to know what's next. 
There's an unquenchable desire for satisfaction. And under the sun, for the last 30 centuries, one thing that humanity has been able to find a common ground in is that we're all looking for some deeper satisfaction than you find on this earth. Never satisfied. I got a reminder of how this is just in the hearts of humanity. I, for the first time this last week, I had been, as a dad, avoiding this kind of conversation, but one of my kids finally came up to me and said, I am so bored. And I was like, oh, no, it's happening. It's happening. When, when they were little, I could literally just do a little trail of Cheerios that eventually they gobbled up until they got to their crib and they found everything, curiosity and fun and exciting. They're just consuming. And now they live in this world that we are all slaves to. The lights are never bright enough. Sermons are never catchy enough. The songs are never good enough. It's like we just, where's the next version of all of the things that we want to be satisfied? And none of us are because you're not designed to be satisfied under the sun. And then he shares one final lack of enthusiasm when you get real about the existence of a life that only lives in the physical reality, you will have to accept something that all of us try to reject, which is that this life has in it, built into the design, an absence of anything new. Nothing new under the sun. The classic line from this book, and here's how he shares it. Verse 9, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is a desire that we all have, that we're drawn to, that the, 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 the C-suite marketers have figured out that we long for. Here's the shiny new thing that your heart is longing for. And yet what this is saying is it's not new. I mean, any preacher who has preached this in the last 10 years has probably held up his phone and said, remember how this felt so new? And then remember every year we lined up to see the next new one? We were like, what's the new one going to be? Oh, my gosh, it's bigger. Now it's smaller. Now it's got a camera. Now it's got three. Now it's only got one, but it's a better one. These are all... In the end, humanity wants to communicate. And we either write letters or we send a oral tradition or we write things down and we communicate to one another. And technology is this illusion that we've figured out some new thing. All we're doing is communicating or we're documenting or we're trying to travel from A to B and somebody had the idea to get on a horse and somebody had the idea to put horses in a car. But it's all the same. We're just moving around. We're, we're moving the definition of what is new. We discovered gravity. It was always there since ancient times. Well, we discovered the solar system. It's been there since the beginning. And this, this was one of the passages of Scripture that initially drew me to this book just as someone who's trying to navigate the times that we live in because it feels so new. It feels like the, the, the organization of governments around the world and the, the, the way that we're navigating with health and sickness and war and church division and the chaos of the generation we live in. It's like, I don't know if anyone's experienced anything like this. It's ancient. There's always been greedy people at the top. And there's always been manipulation of people against people. There's always been infighting and division and tension. 
There's always been a need for people to receive the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit to work out their problems. And apart from God, it has always been left in an unsatisfactory design. None of this is new. And I find great comfort in that because we have a God who sits on his throne. And as the nations rage... And as the the hearts boil over with worry and anxiety, wondering what the plan is, the God of yesterday, today, and forever, who founded the world with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, knows exactly what to do. He knows exactly how to comfort us, how to lead us and shepherd us, how to use those who believe in life that goes beyond the sun as his hands and feet and messengers of a better way. And this is not anything that is requiring the sovereign God of creation who put all of this into motion to come up with a plan B. None of this is new. And so we have four ways that life will absolutely kill the wind in your sails. And we have some conclusions. Now, these are not the grand finale conclusions of chapter 12. But we have some conclusions this morning that I hope will comfort you and draw you in to the power of these words for such a time as this. The first conclusion that Solomon makes from all of this is found in verse 11. He says, there's no remembrance for former things, nor will be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after me. As he thinks about all of the ways that we grasp at the wind and we look for meaning apart from God to our own despair, he gives a very comforting Conclusion through a revelation of his own life. No one's going to remember you. <laughs> Welcome to church. It's like, <laughs> everything's been done, and all of the pressure that you feel, that burden that was given to you by God to use this life to understand the meaning by which you will find God and your calling, the pressure to impress people with your sense of purpose, The pressure to have your identity so clear that everyone would be able to see you and see someone who's living a life well lived. Let's remove a little bit of that pressure from one of these conclusions of a man who saw it all. No one remembers all of the things that you're worried about. There's 7 billion people on our planet and 99.9 to the power of infinity almost don't know who you are. And all of the people that do know who you are are living within a vapor of a time and you will soon be forgotten under the sun. And some of that is comforting even I say it because the pressures that we all feel, I feel at times, I want to share something with you that would give you the power of God's word and, and, and maybe a, a desire to be part of our fellowship or be a movement of God's spirit in our church. And, and it's sometimes hard to separate identity from a pulpit. And yet I read this and I'm reminded that you guys won't remember me. (laughs) I get to remember that today and cash it in probably in two weeks from now when some of you will not remember one word I said today. (laughs) How many sermons do you remember from three years ago? What was your list of worry and anxiety from five years ago? What were the things that you were so concerned about pursuing 10 years ago? You don't even remember yourself. 
And we put so much pressure on this side of the sun to figure everything out because we think all eyes are on us. That's the bad news is that you will be a forgotten and lost person very quickly. But here's the good news. There is life beyond the sun. And one of the ways this will be a conclusion that leads to redemption is there is, in fact, one person who not only will remember you, who knows you better than you know yourself. And in this 70 to 80 years that we may or may not see the end of, you, in fact, will go beyond the sun. According to where all of this is pointing us, it says that there's appointed one day to die, and then comes a judgment, an account of your life. And when you start thinking about the fork of the road for meaning and purpose, for some sort of existence apart from God, not to say that you're an atheist, but to say that God truly doesn't matter in your life. And that's one way that all of us will be tempted to live. A lost and forgotten existence. And then there is a draw by the kindness of God's spirit to say, I see you. I remember you. I made you for a purpose and I will see you soon. And when you start to live your life for the one person that actually will remember, it will change everything. Because if you're like me, the idea that people do remember me, and uh, the world's got the receipts on everything I say, sermons are, you know, they're in, they're in, the, they're in the interverse now, so I'm, I'm held accountable. And when I think about all eyes on me, I sometimes cower at the fact that my words will be remembered. And maybe you think that too. Is you're a believer in the power of the regenerative spirit of God in you, called to a culture that doesn't like the truth, that rejects the master Christ and his students will not be better than the master, called to stand up for truth that will get you hated, despised? You may think it would be better to say nothing. It'd be better to stay neutral. But if you're living under the sun, remember that you're trying to impress people that don't care about you, and there is a God that is longing for your life. Who will remember you? A second conclusion. Starting again in verse 12, we already read this as the synopsis of it, but it leads to another conclusion that he'll make. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven the burdensome tasks that God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping at the wind. Here's a conclusion he's about to make after saying he lived his life to crack the code, to use wisdom, to, to, to reflect on the ideas and the, the seat of his emotion and his will inside of his own heart as if he got to call the shot. He saw it, he tried it, apart from God, it was vanity, and here's the conclusion that he makes. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking can be not, cannot be numbered. And this points to another moment of the pursuit of meaning that this man is on, and a, a pursuit of meaning that every single one of you have wrestled with. How does my life make an impact for good? How can my life be part of straightening the crooked line of humanity? or in my neighborhood, or orphans, or sex trafficking, or corruption in the government, or corruption inside of the walls of a church, and all of the evils that, that give the, the line of humanity such a wayward approach. And he, the conclusion that he makes is, the crooked line's not getting straight on this side of the sun. All that is lacking, you can't even count it up. 30 centuries 
have come and gone. And inside the design of God to search out this meaning that is burdensome to his aim, no one has straightened the crooked line. All of the governments you study in your civics class have tried their hand at some sort of system by which the earthly existence could be made right. What is the right way to administer justice and mercy, prosperity of all people and not just a few? What's the right way for you to live your life so that you no longer do the things you don't want to do, a slave to your own sin? And the cold reality that is found in this man's journey is that apart from God, the line stays crooked. There will be no reform of the government that will bring this side of the kingdom of God's justice. There will be no perfect solution. Monarchy, democracy, dictatorship, whatever the version of the crooked line straightening is will fail. It has forever and it always will. Now, we have to continually redeem these moments. Does that mean that believers just give up on all of the politics and all of the challenges of this world? No. Jesus, when teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, bring heaven to earth. <laughs> For those of you who desire to live outside of the earthly existence, beyond what you can see, you're an ambassador of a different government, of a different kingdom a kingdom that is on its way that is not yet fully here. And for that reason, you do everything you can to negotiate the straight line of God's kingdom. But you put zero hope in a kingdom on earth apart from God. There will be no Tower of Babel that ever works. There will be no organization of people in any capacity to find justice apart from God that finds the breakthrough that we all long for. The crooked line will remain, straight, will remain crooked. And then finally, he comes to a conclusion, starting in verse 16. This will finish our chapter. I commune with my heart, saying, Look, I've attained greatness, and I've gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and no madness and folly. I perceive this also as grasping at the wind. He set his aim to know wisdom to understand the inner workings of the creation that God has placed us in. Wisdom for life, for your body, for your neighbor. Wisdom for your relationships with children and, and, the, and the intergenerational relationships that you have. Wisdom on how to do well with the resources, your finances, how to have a, a good balanced diet. And yet he comes to the same conclusion under the sun. For in much wisdom is much grief, and who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He graduated from all the graduate programs. He learned everything he could possibly learn, the reputation as the wisest man in the world, and he said, if all it is is knowledge and wisdom, and it's not pointing me to something that takes me beyond this reality, I have grief and sorrow now. He knows too much the inner mechanics of the molecular level all the way out to the solar system. We've cracked so many codes of the fabric of this universe, and yet, if it's not pointing us to the hand of God that sets it all into motion, it's meaningless, it's vanity. 
We don't save people with self-help books that they can buy at Barnes & Noble. And you can have a better diet and you can have a better bank account, but it'll still be vanity. In the end, you'll just have a better meaningless life. Congratulations. And so now we conclude with the combination of all of these things as to where this is pointing us and how we find to kick off the season of life that God is calling all of us in. If you are going to sit under the, the preaching and the teaching and read through the light of Ecclesiastes, what is the redemptive message for us this morning? As I went through all of this, I thought of what Jesus says about the game of life and acquisition for something that could give you a blessed under the sun existence and nothing more. He says in Mark chapter 8, for what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You nail every one of these pursuits. You've got it all. Wealth and wisdom, peace and prosperity, and yet the message of the gospel that we see cycling through humanity is every person that climbs to the top under the sun dies and passes it to the next generation is what's the point if your soul isn't alive in something that goes beyond? As I was wrestling with my own desire for meaning, I was a young man in my 20s and drawn to understanding what the teachings of Christianity we're all about, and like many of you, I'm sure, read mere Christianity. And he has a moment in his expose of simply following Jesus as an answer to the meaning of life that picks up where Ecclesiastes chapter 1 leaves us. And all of these desires to break the cycle of life and death and the monotony of nature, to find something that would be satisfactory for longer than a moment, there's something that is stirring in you purposefully that should take you beyond this world. And this is how C.S. Lewis describes it. The Christian says creatures are not born without desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A body feels hunger. There's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. There's such a thing as sex. All of these ways that you relate to the pursuit of a, a meaning you can cling to were put in your heart, not meant to be satisfied under the sun. Meant to be stirred up. My job to point you the meaningless pursuits apart from God by pricking your heart for God. He goes on to say, if I find myself with a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfied, that does not prove the universe a fraud. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but to arouse it to suggest the real thing. I hope you're longing for the cry of worship now. The worship that you sing in your hearts by faith to a God that you cannot see visibly. A reminder that he does not dwell simply in all of his glory under the sun, but there is a heavens. There is a spiritual realm that the Father is drawing all of us to and our worship is stirred up in us so we say, my satisfactions belong to you, God. I'll share one breadcrumb, not getting all the way to chapter 12, but 
Solomon points something out that I hope all of us will consider because what's happening in this summer series is there's a fork in the road for all of your passion. There's a fork in the road for your relationships and for your desire for your life to mean something. And it is a life under the sun where God's will is not the driving force of your life. And there is a life that says, I just want to learn how to worship beyond this earthly existence. And there's a, there's a signpost for that in chapter 3 when Solomon says, everything will be made beautiful in its time. Everything that we discussed is in, in the journey of life, God will redeem in a perfect time to show you why he used that in your life that will point you towards what he's about to say. Also, he has put eternity in everyone's hearts. In your heart, in a way that if you really meditate on what is just said, is hard to grasp, there is something eternal. There's something that will never be satisfied with the temporal. There's something that we are to be stirred in as we worship and study the word and open our hands to the power of God that is continually drawing us to something beyond this earth. And that is the difference between grasping at air, a life of vanity, and a life that will find satisfaction on our way to meet our maker. And as Daniel said in, in his vision cast for Africa, there's so many things that we put as opportunities to be a part of this church. Give school supplies to kids in need. Think about orphans in India, maybe sponsor one. Send a team of people to get a lay of the land in Africa. Be a good mom and dad, a husband and wife, have a thriving marriage. And what is being drawn out this morning is to say this, and if it's not pointing you, you as a vessel pointing all of it up to the eternal, to the God who exists outside of all of it, it will eventually be a grasp at the wind of vanity. The fork in the road. What are you living your life for? For those of you who believe, I want to share one final passage that prepares our hearts for worship and communion when we hold in our hands the symbol of the cycle of death broken. The body and the blood of Christ given for us. Death left in the grave, life beyond. And if you believe this is a message for you to be encouraged about the state of our world, it says in Corinthians, we don't lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Our light afflictions, our light moment of vanity, our light wrestling with the meaninglessness of life is just a moment, working for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at things that are seen but the things which are unseen. The things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. What are you living your life for?